Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. It's a great blessing to be here a second time to worship together our sovereign and triune God. Hearty welcome to all who are present here, also those who have joined us via the live stream. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and in trust to our faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, and cause us to live our lives to the praise of him. Consistory has the following announcements. Consistory with deacons will meet tomorrow evening at 8pm. The annual general meeting is scheduled for Monday the 18th of September at 8pm with coffee available from 7.30pm. This afternoon the worship service will be led by Reverend Pohl, Minister of the Free Reformed Church of Mandajong. Before we commence the worship service, let's sing together hymn 28 verse 6. rise to worship the Lord. We confess that our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Receive the Lord's greeting, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Let's respond to the Lord's greeting in the words of Psalm 118, stanzas 1, 5, and 7.
Psalm 118 is a psalm that calls God's people to worship and to confess their faith and trust in him. Let us now confess our faith in our triune God in the words of the Nicene Creed and so together with the church of all times and all places profess our faith. Afterwards we'll respond by singing from hymn 25 stanzas 1, 2, and 6. Let everyone say together with me in his heart, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.
This morning, the Lord delivered Brother Peter Vandershaft from Albany from his long struggle with Alzheimer's, so we'll remember his family in prayer as well this afternoon. We'll also give thanks that the seminary convocation could take place and um, that the Lord gifted us with all of the gifts that we received during Choral Fest. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we have gathered here together this afternoon. We praise you for your goodness, for your firm and steadfast love. Your love never changes. We can build our lives on it. We thank you that you have adopted your people as your children, that you declare them righteous through the blood of Christ, that you sanctify them by your Holy Spirit. Triune God, we thank you that you shine upon us the glorious brightness of your face and that no one can ever take that away from your children. Not illness, not disease, not even death itself. That those who die in you can also be assured of everlasting life. So we give thanks together with the Vandershaft family that you delivered Brother Peter Vandershaft from his long struggle with Alzheimer's disease. That we know in faith that he too received that promise that all those who, who die as your children will look upon the glorious brightness of your face forever and ever. We pray that your grace would then accompany also his widow and his children and extended family as they lay his body to rest. We pray for all those in our midst who have family members who struggle with dementia or Alzheimer's. It can be such a long struggle, protracted over so many years often. And we, we pray that you would give endurance, that you would continue to bring your promises before your people and that even if we forget who we are that you will never forget that you've engraved our names on the palms of your hands we thank you for those marvelous promises and we pray that we would remember them and hold on to them this afternoon we realize again that your steadfast love came at a cost because your own son came down from heaven to suffer and to die for our transgression and even then, his greatness was not noticed or respected. Grant that we would grow in our respect also this afternoon and that we would learn to know better. We pray for the spread of the gospel throughout this world. We live in a world that is so confused in so many different ways, but your gospel stands as a beacon of light. We give thanks that that light could also be celebrated during Choral Fest. And we, we pray, Lord, that your name would continue to be glorified by your people. We thank you for what we received also through the talents that were shared during Choral Fest. And we pray that we would glorify your name not only in song, but in every other part of our lives as well. We pray that the gospel would continue to spread also through the work done by the seminary. We give thanks that the convocation could take place this past Friday. And we 
pray that as a new year commences that you would be with the students and the professors and the staff as well, that, um, that you would grant that they would all be united in a common faith and that many more men could be raised up and be trained for the preaching of the gospel, perhaps even raised up from this very congregation. We pray now that you would unite us through the gospel also this afternoon. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to Scripture as it comes to us in Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus chapter 5. I'm going to read the verses, um, verse 14 through 6, verse 7. Leviticus 5, starting at verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He, he shall also make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering. He has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt." And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord, and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do, and thereby become guilty. Let's respond to the reading of God's word by singing Psalm 49, stanzas 2, 3, and 4.
I've been asked this afternoon to preach on um, Scripture as it is summarized in Lord's Day 23 concerning our justification. I'm going to read Lord's Day 23 together, page 537. So the first question in this Lord's Day looks back at the Apostles' Creed, which has just been dealt with in the previous Lord's Days. And it says, what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we live in a time that is full of paradoxes. One of the great paradoxes of our age is that though, although it is not religious, it acts as if it is. That is to say, it works and it thinks in religious categories. And one of those categories is guilt. Western culture has developed a sense of profound guilt in relation to various issues. Anybody who's perceived as guilty is immediately canceled by other people. When someone is canceled, that means that person's reputation and employment is attacked and sometimes destroyed online by people who think that person has said something wrong. Typically, cancellation comes from within the person's organization or business. When someone is canceled, it often means that their career is over. That makes cancellation a terrifying prospect for a lot of people. To give an example of how this works, some time ago there was a middle-aged American lady who was part of an online group of people who knit. She wrote on her blog that she was going to visit India. She also wrote that she had wanted to visit India since she was a teenager. She had had an opportunity at that time, but she declined because she said at the time when she was so young as a teenager, she got offered this trip to India, and she declined because she said, quote, 
it felt like, quote, being offered a seat on a flight to Mars. In other words, it felt completely out of reach to her. We can, we can all imagine that, right? You have a young, young girl and she has some friends from India and they say, hey, come visit our family. And she says, ah, you know, it, it feels out of reach to me. Felt like going to Mars, but now, now that she's an adult, she can do this trip and she was looking forward to it. So she wrote about this on her blog and a number of people took offense at the comparison, going to India, comparing that to going to Mars. Most of these people, ironically, were not Indian. And other people joined in and they brought all sorts of other issues into the discussion. And eventually she apologized, but it wasn't enough. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of comments. Here's one of them. One person wrote, You're sorry people are offended. That's not an apology for your deeply racist and reductive statement. Please rethink this trip. Don't force the people of India to deal with you and your colonializing mindset. End quote. There were lots more comments like that posted by other people on her website. So she published another follow-up apology, but that, of course, wasn't good enough either. And you know, what's most striking about this whole phenomenon, and by the way, this is, um, this is not an exception. This, is, this happens a lot on the internet. You know what's most striking about it? There's no grace in this conversation, and there is no possibility for atonement. There are only people trying to outdo each other in being morally pure. Are you against racism? And have you posted a long comment about that? Then someone else will come along who's even more against racism than you are, and they will criticize you for not being against it enough. But then someone else comes along for them. And you end up in this, it's called a purity spiral. It's this corkscrew going down of people that are trying to outdo each other in virtue signaling. And eventually the purity spiral crushes under its own moral weight because you can only take this sort of conversation so far. What you have left in the end is a group of anger, angry, bitter, self-righteous people looking for the next issue to latch onto and then it starts all over again. And there's no way out. Now think about this. There is a sense in which our age has a lot to say about guilt. But guilt is not a secular concept. Guilt is fundamentally a religious concept. And so to really understand what this means, you need to turn to the Bible. The Bible teaches us that guilt is objective, not subjective. The Catechism deals with that as well. And the gospel says that you can be rid of guilt. Not by your own works, but by the works of Christ. The Old Testament gives us insight into guilt and how to deal with it. And with that in mind, we can return to the catechism and consider Lord's Day 23. We can consider that because we are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. And we'll see that it's taken away before God, before our neighbor, and before ourselves. We ourselves have perhaps absorbed some of this secular thinking as well. Consider, for instance, the words of Lord's Day 23, which we read together this afternoon. It says, 
My conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them. Do, do you actually believe that? Does our conscience bother us sometimes? And if it does, is that because of the reason that the Catechism says it should, namely that I have grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, or are there other reasons? We think grievous is what you get when you follow sin as far as it goes. But actually the whole range of sin before that is grievous as well. Sin is not just the things that you do that are wrong. It's the whole spectrum of rebellious thoughts, words, deeds, attitudes, emotions that go before it. Sin is the absence of good in our lives as well. When the Catechism says we have never kept any of God's commandments, what it means is that we have never kept any of them completely. We might have made a small beginning here and there, but we've never lived out the totality of obedience that God's law requires of us and that God deserves as our creator. And we are post-fall not inclined by nature to do so either. The, the, the catechism says we are still inclined to all evil. Now, I should not misunderstand that. The catechism is not suggesting that we're all lying in wait for each other and that all of this religiosity is just a veneer. It's not saying that. The point is that we're still caught between the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. So the, the old nature, the basic inclination to sin is always sleeping under the surface. And we forget that sometimes. We see the progress of God's spirit in our lives and we let our guard down. We start to think about ourselves as people that are not that bad. And then we, then we stop being vigilant. And the catechism is trying to Warn us against that. That phrase, inclined to all evil, means we should never think that there are some forms of sin that we would not commit. We are capable of all evil. That word inclined means this is your default direction in which you, which you lean. If we could hold a show of hands here, a survey, um, we could ask... We could ask the youth, have you ever kicked a soccer ball on a roof? Your parents' roof at home. I know the school roof is flat, so this illustration doesn't apply. But um, your parents' roof at home, have you ever kicked a soccer ball on it? What happens to that ball? It's going to roll back down again unless something else is in the way, like a chimney. Then you have a bigger problem. So that's what it means to be inclined, to be inclined. Unless something restrains that ball, it's going to roll down. And that's what... We're all like by nature. Breeding may restrain us. Circumstances may restrain us. Social judgment may restrain us. The, the opinion of our family and friends may restrain us. But we should never think that the potential for great evil does not live in each of us. It does. There was only one man who was truly good. The rest of us are works in progress. So sin is a force to be reckoned with. Your conscience alone will not tell you how grievous it is. For that, you need to turn not to the internet, but to Scripture. To get a sense of how grievous, look at the Old Testament sacrifices. There were four types, 
burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Now, the grain offering could be considered a fifth type, but it often went with a burnt offering, and so it was closely connected. So if you focus only on the main offerings, there are four kinds. And those are dealt with in the first chapters of Leviticus, including the section that we read. And each sacrifice portrayed a particular way of looking at sin. So the burnt, burnt offerings could be offered for various reasons. But often the burnt offering was, was offered to atone for a particular sin. And it would teach the people that sin is an offense before God that requires death. So guilt was then symbolically transferred to the animal, and the animal died instead of the sinner. The peace offerings, or fellowship offerings as they're called in some translations, show that sin damages relationships. So the point of this offering was to show that sin damages relationships between God and man, and also between man and his neighbor. And the offering was meant to highlight that and then to restore those damaged relationships. So this offering highlighted the social cost of sin and the need for reconciliation. The sin offering used what one scholar calls a medical model of sin. This, this displays, this shows sin as a pollution that requires purification. The sin offering shows how, how sin can pollute things and they need to be cleansed afterwards. And then you get the guilt offering and that was the one that we read about this afternoon. This is called the, the trespass offering in some other translations, but the ESV calls it a guilt offering. That's a good translation. That's what we'll stick with. And the, the guilt offering is what one scholar calls a commercial picture of, skin, of sin, a commercial picture of sin. So it shows sin as a debt, which then requires some kind of compensation. So... The point of all of these offerings, if you've ever read them and wondered about, you know, why is this here? The, the point was to highlight different aspects of sin and to teach God's people the damage that sin causes. And they also all included a form of atonement. But the focus on each offering was different. And so the point here this afternoon is that an Israelite living in Old Testament times would have had a much better idea of exactly how grievous sin is and how pervasive its influence. So when the Catechism says, I've grievously sinned against all of God's commandments, the Catechism, of course, was not written yet at that point in time, but these ancient Israelites would have understood on a much deeper level than we do how grievous that is. So it's interesting for us then to, to go back to this and to look at it together and to maybe absorb some of that thinking in light of Lord's Day 23. And so we're going to look at this guilt offering and, and starting with the word guilt, what does that actually mean? The word translated as guilt can have a wide range of meaning in the Old Testament. And here it's being used in a sense that somebody bears responsibility for having committed a particular sin. And that responsibility is the guilt. So guilt is not just a feeling. Guilt is actually an objective condition that comes from having trespassed against the Lord's commandments. So that idea of trespass is there as well, and that's why it's called the trespass offering in the New King James Version and the guilt offering in the ESV. They're, 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 both, they're, both, um, they're both legitimate ways of translating this word. So what sorts of sins would require a guilt offering? 
But if you look at 5 verse 15, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish and so forth. So at first that seems rather vague. If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, what does that mean? He would expect it to mean something like eating food meant for a priest or something, but the people knew already. They knew the rules. So, so what is this referring to? And verse 15 refers to those who commit a breach of faith and sin unintentionally. So whatever these sins might be, they're still regarded as a breach of faith. In fact, in the Old Testament, there are really only two kinds of sin. There is sin committed unintentionally and sin committed with a high hand. This is sin committed with a high hand. You understand what that means. This is, this is deliberate rebellion. Sin committed with a high hand is deliberate rebellion against God. Everything else goes into the category of unintentional sin. And so what that means is that unintentional sin cannot mean that it was just an accident, that you didn't know the rules. And unintentional means that it was unplanned. It was not premeditated rebellion against God but it was sin committed in moral weakness. The sort of sin that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 7 verse 18 when he writes that he has the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So this kind of breach of faith would be unintentional in the sense of being unplanned, specifically in relation to the holy things of God. So for example, you know that there were laws about tithing. Imagine a farmer who was supposed to tithe, but then... In a moment of weakness, he keeps the best part of the crop for himself. And we've probably all done that in different ways, right? Um, keeping the best part for ourselves. So we can relate to that. And that's the sort of thing that it's talking about. That also explains, this definition of unintentional sin also explains verse 17. Verse, if verse 15 refers to sin committed in weakness, verse 17 refers to sin committed in ignorance. Here the person really doesn't know any better. And you know what's the most interesting about this? It's still considered sin. Ignorance is no excuse. We might say, well, how, how can this be a sin if the person didn't, didn't do it on purpose? And you see this in arguments between people all of the time. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. I didn't know that this was offensive to you. So, you know, it's implied, well, I didn't know any better, so therefore you shouldn't hold it against me. And, and Scripture does not let you do that. Guilt is the responsibility that someone has for committing a particular sin, remember? It doesn't stop being a sin if you didn't know that it was a sin when you committed it. And a good example from our day-to-day -day life would be speeding. Maybe some of you had a speeding ticket this past week. Hope not. And it makes no difference whether you know that you're speeding or not. Right, the camera is there, parked in the bushes, and if you drive past it and you're going over the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket. It is not relevant whether or not you knew that the camera was there. The rules are the rules. Your ignorance of the rules does not nullify them. But now, what is particularly interesting here is that this guilt offering even applies to what we would call deliberate sin. Look at chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. If anyone sins 
and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely in any of the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found, and so on, then he needs to restore it in full and add a fifth to it. So, so look at the first half of that. Someone who, who commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security and, get this, through robbery. Can you imagine? I mean, we hear sometimes of church members who defraud each other. Thankfully, it doesn't happen often, but robbery? Really? Robbery. If anyone here actually robbed someone else, we would never forget. And yet, even here, atonement is possible. He's saying forgiveness is still possible for the people who commit such a sin as long as there is genuine repentance. The only unforgivable sin is is sin with a high hand. In, In the New Testament, it's called sin against the Holy Spirit. Unrepentant sin, unrepentant, that's the key aspect. Unrepentant sin in open and deliberate defiance against God. Such a person actively rejects God, and therefore there is no true repentance, and therefore no possibility of forgiveness either. So when you read all of these Old Testament laws, you really develop an appreciation for what the catechism means when it says we've grievously sinned against all of God's commandments. See, we've spent all of this time just thinking about that one phrase, grievously sinned against all God's commandments. But that's not even the most striking part What is so striking when you read these Old Testament laws is not just how grievous sin is, but how willing God is to forgive. God urgently wants people to be restored to him. Every single one of these sacrifices was meant to restore the broken relationship with God and your neighbor and often to celebrate that restoration as well. Everything was set up to draw people in. And we don't think that because we're looking at this book from our, our Western perspective and we look at all these rules and we think... How's anyone ever going to keep track of all of that? But, but the, what this reveals is God's desire to draw people to himself, to restore people to himself. So you see the gospel in all of these regulations. It's saying, yes, God is a law keeper. Yes, you need to live at peace with God, but God has made it possible for people to come to him. And from that perspective, you really begin to value what Christ did. All of those sacrifices were fulfilled in him. Does the burnt offering remind us that sin requires a ransom? Well, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does sin damage the relationship between God and man and between each other? Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Does the sin offering remind us that sin is pollution? Well, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Does sin leave us in God's debt? Our faithful Savior has fully paid for all our sins with his precious blood. So the sacrifices show what needs to happen to take away sin, but ultimately they also point us to what Christ has done. He is the ultimate, the final offering In particular, Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that his soul or his life was made a guilt offering. 
In other words, Christ is the ultimate guilt offering, the one who fully paid off our debt to God, the one who has made us positively righteous. He didn't just bring us back up to, to a neutral relationship with God, neither good nor bad. No, Lord's Day 23 goes on to say that God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes, that means credits to me, the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. To impute means to credit. So, so in other words, from God's perspective, all of the claims of the law against his people were satisfied. But not only that, he regards them as completely righteous and completely holy. Or to put it differently again, it's not just that Jesus, because of what Jesus did, that sin is taken away. It is that the relationship between us and God is completely restored, that he regards us as completely righteous, that we are his dear children, that you will never be more righteous in the eyes of God than you are at this very moment, and that God did this for us before we could have done anything to earn it. That is demonstrated in the fact that we baptize our children. The inability of a child to to merit its baptism and to merit the baptismal promises clearly shows our natural inability to merit God's grace. But he gives it to us anyway. So among many other things, baptism is an illustration of that. Faith is simply the act of believing that. That's why you need to respond with faith to your baptism. Because we're righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away before God Let's see how it's now also taken away before our neighbor. Look at this, 6 verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security. So a sin against your neighbor is primarily a sin against God. Did you see that? This is instructive. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor. And then the verse goes on to, to talk about personal property, a matter of deposit or security or robbery and so on. And we tend to focus on that. We focus on the rights that have been violated. But what about the rights of God? A sin against your neighbor is primarily a sin against God. Are we as zealous for the restitution of God's rights as we are for our own? At the same time, when the Lord forgives someone, then that person should also be forgiven by his or her neighbor. It is Christ in whom we're all bound together. A related verse is Ephesians 2, verse 16, which expresses the same principle in a different context when it refers to the natural enmity that existed between Jews and Gentiles because, you know, in the Old Testament era, there was this wall of division between the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the non-Jews. And um, that division often was expressed in hostility. And now it says that Christ reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the Lord ties us together. And it is therefore not right for someone to be truly reconciled with the Lord, but not with his neighbor. So, so if the person who has sinned against us has been truly forgiven by the Lord, then we need to let go of our anger against that person as well. But having said that, true faith always results in deeds. 
So 6 verse 1 through 7 is actually a very strong warning against those who sin against their neighbor and want to be right with God. It says in verse 5 that anyone who sins against his neighbor in any of these ways that were described and wants to make amends, has to make amends and then add one-fifth of the value as a compensation. You see that? He shall restore it in full, verse 5, and it shall add a fifth to it, and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. So you don't wait with this. And then, only then, only then, after that, shall he bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish, and so on. In other words, don't come to the Lord and expect forgiveness if you have not first acknowledged wrong to your neighbor and compensated him or her where this is possible. This principle is expressed in, in the New Testament as well when Jesus says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Love for God and love for your neighbor cannot be separated from each other. That's why when it comes to, to marital conflict, it is not possible for someone to hate his spouse or her spouse and at the same time say that they feel closer to God than they've ever been before. It doesn't work that way. That is, not, that is not a thing. Such a person is deluding themselves. If you sin against someone and are truly repentant, then the person against whom you sin does need to forgive you. That's a biblical principle. And it may take time to work through the consequences of sin, but at some point there needs to be forgiveness. After all, because we are righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. Remember that guilt is an objective thing that's outside of us and that is taken away in Christ. And if it's taken away before God, and if we've done all that we can do to make amends, then it should be taken away before our neighbor as well. But it can be difficult to win trust back. Sometimes it never happens. When you read our passage, it's clear that the covenant obligation is reconciliation and peace. But feelings of trust take longer to grow. And if trust has been broken, it does not grow back easily. And sometimes it never grows back again. So what should you do with that? If there's someone in your life who doesn't trust you because of the things that you've done, then your first step is to go and do all that you can to be reconciled to that person. And if trust is still lacking, then all you can do is hope and pray in humility that it will grow back. Now, sometimes people try to force these situations through manipulation. You do not regain trust by manipulation. You regain trust by living before the Lord in humility as a sinner who has been forgiven. And if your faith is real, then the fruit of faith will grow in your life as well. And that fruit will speak for itself. Other people will notice and eventually maybe one day you'll win that trust back. And before then you simply need to leave it with God. Because we're righteous by true faith in Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away. We've seen that it's taken away before God. We've seen that therefore it must also be taken away before our neighbor. And then when that happens, it can be taken away before ourselves as well. In other words, we don't need to feel guilty anymore. We'll look at that last. Now, you might wonder, why did that point come last? Because our own opinion on these matters is the least important. And that's very countercultural. We we live in a culture that puts ourselves and our own opinions and feelings first. Feelings are facts to a lot of people. 
and we can have a lot of subjective, subjective impressions about ourselves and others, but in the end, it's possible to be completely wrong about yourself, even though you're totally convinced that you're right. Don't think that you're an exception to that rule that can happen to anyone. So we need to consider our own analysis of a situation, any situation, last. But at the same time, there, there is a way in which our own thoughts and memories can make us look away from Christ. We might think of things that we did wrong in the past. Maybe we did our best to make amends, but we still wonder whether or not the Lord really accepts us. If so, let us remember that the Old Testament sacrifices indisputably teach us that God wants to dwell with his people. And he has made that possible through the one great sacrifice of the perfect life and the perfect death of Jesus Christ. The Catechism reminds us that we are not saved on account of the worthiness of our faith, but the worthiness of Christ. It says only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. There's nothing more thorough than the work of Christ. All of these sacrifices, with their sometimes tremendous complexity and thoroughness are a mere shadow pointing forward to the thoroughness of what Christ has done for us. Just a shadow, no more. So look to Christ. We can receive his righteousness and make it our own by faith only. If we've truly repented, if we've truly asked God for forgiveness, if we've reconciled with our neighbor to the best of our ability, then we have no more guilt. And you know what? If God let go of it, so should we. Then the words of Hebrews 10 verse 22 apply to us as well. Let us draw near. It's a beautiful phrase. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That washing is greater than any sin more thorough than any purity spiral. And when we truly believe that, then there is peace. Because then our virtue does not depend on putting others down in order to prop ourselves up. Then it doesn't depend on comparing ourselves with others. It doesn't even depend on our feelings in any way, shape, or form. Before God, we are all equally in need of grace. And before God, all those who repent have received the perfect imputation of Christ in equal measure. And then they are all heirs to life everlasting, regardless of language, ancestry, or skin color. There is no greater equalizer than that. May we all learn what that means and live accordingly. Amen.
Let's give thanks. Dear Father, God of grace, you have imputed our sin to our substitute and imputed his righteousness to our souls. You have clothed us with his righteousness, but often we do not live accordingly. Our best deeds are still tainted with sin. Our most sincere confessions still do not grasp the totality of our sin and your forgiveness. We are astounded at how far you have gone to bring about reconciliation. You have given us your own son, and that fills us with hope. Because if you gave us your son, will you not together with him give us all other things that pertain to salvation? So we pray that you would forgive us of all insincerity, that you would take away our guilt in your eyes and before our neighbor, that if there are any outstanding matters between us and others, that at this moment we would feel convicted of that to remedy these wrongs, that there would be a spirit of forgiveness in our midst, and that if all this has been done, then you would take away any lingering remnants of guilt and doubt and grant us a clear conscience. Let us live out of your justification. Let us never lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of your grace. Let that awareness accompany us into the week that lies ahead. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. We now have an opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord. After the offering has been gathered, we'll sing from Psalm 92, stanzas 3 and 6.
where God is blessing grants within his courts, they flourish, receive the blessing of the Lord, and go home in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.